Okay, let's open up this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we praise you and we thank you for this time to come together and to read and to study your word. Throughout this building, we just ask you, Lord, that you guide and direct the, the hearts of each of the students and each of the children. And pray, Father, that you just guide and direct our lives. We just praise you and thank you so very much for all that you do. We ask you, Lord, to please open up our eyes and our hearts to your word and that we may gain wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing on with uh, in Revelations. Um, last week we, we started out in chapter 2, and this week we're going into chapter 3. We were talking about the seven churches. And the book of Revelations, just as a reminder, the book of Revelations was constructed by Christ and recorded by John. These are real historical churches that were in Asia Minor, just off the Mediterranean Sea. The following letters were sent to the churches, and they're full of lessons that we can learn from them. And they're good throughout all the church ages. They're good for the past, they're good for the present, they're good for the future. All churches fit into one or more of these letters, as well as all the people that are in the church. So let's start out in verse uh, number one of chapter number three. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who, is, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Notice how he starts out. He starts out with, the seven stars and the seven churches. He says that I know your works and that you have a name. You know, obviously this church was a well-known church. They were probably well-known in the community, well-known in their era there. And you notice what you go on to say that he says that um, you have a name that you are alive, meaning that you know, that they believed that it was an active church. But he goes on to say, but you are dead. How does a church think that they're living? How does a church think that they're thriving? And Christ thinks that they're a dead church. As we talked about before, when we lose our first love, when we take Christ out of the church, this is one of the fastest ways that a church dies. How sad it must have been to hear those words sitting in the pews or sitting in the congregation and having that messenger reading this letter to a church that thought that they were thriving to be told that they were dead. I'm sure most of them in that congregation thought that they would be hearing that they were doing good. See, the church is a place that should be set apart. The church is a place of hope. And by design, it's a place where God dwells. What a blow it must have been to, to have heard these words. In verse number two, he goes on to say, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. The church seems to have started some things that were a very good ministry. But it seems like they just are not following through with it. I'm afraid this probably happens pretty often. I think that there's a lot of churches and I think there's a lot of ministries out there that begin a good work that begin doing things and preaching the gospel and they either grow weary or they just don't see it to completion. My question to you is how many times in your own life have you started something that you know is God called you to do 
and you just haven't completed it. You haven't followed through with it. I think if we can be honest with ourselves, I think probably most of us at some point, and that's me included, but of it sometimes have allowed circumstances or trials to deter me from following through with what God has called me to do. Sometimes we let those roadblocks in our lives stop us. And it's because we're not following through. We're not relying on Christ. We're not call, relying on the one that called us to do those things. And so when we fall short of that, then we fall short of the calling of God. <coughs> Strengthen the things which remain. What a great place to start self-examining. Look at the things that God has called you to do, the things that are still out there, the things, the ministries that you've started or, or started to participate in, and examine where am I at in those things? Where am I at in what I'm believing? Where am I at in what God has called me to do? Going into verse 3, it says, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not, if you will watch, I will come, <clears throat> excuse me. It says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. See, every day we wake up and we expect things to work out the same as they did yesterday. Every day we think, well, it worked this way yesterday. It should work this way today. This is the same message that he gave to the church in Ephesus. Remember. Remember what? Remember your first love. Remember last week we talked about, remember what it was like when you were first saved? Do you remember the, the emotion, the zeal, the passion? You didn't care what people thought. Your excitement was uncontrollable. And you wanted to share that with everybody. You didn't care how people looked at you or what they thought about you. What was your drive? You know, we were excited to share what God had done. You know, we were passionate about it. We had zeal about it. We had enthusiasm. We were thinking... We had Thanksgiving. You know, we praised. We wanted to share that love. That love that poured out of a transformed heart. See, when Christ entered our lives, we were transformed. We were no longer that old man, but a new creation. And we wanted to share that with people. That's what he wants us to remember. And on into verse 4, he says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, even though Christ called this church a dead church, he goes on to say that there were a few that were still doing it right. This is one of those times when it's so important that we don't judge the book by the cover. You know, because even in a church that's dying, he goes on to say that there are a few that are still doing it right. He says that, that, the, that there are those who have not defiled their garments and that shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The white garment, it represents pureness. It represents holiness. 
Christ promises us to clothe Christians in the brilliance of eternal purity, eternal holiness. And in verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. As we talked about last week, when he says, I will not blot them out of the book of life, we are not talking about a salvation issue. This does not mean that God adds names and takes names out when we falter. Last week we looked at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Everlasting. Eternal. 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of Christ, of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with what? Eternal glory. Eternal. In Hebrews 5.9 it says, And having been perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Eternal. Eternal doesn't mean that we can get it and lose it. Eternal is eternal. It's forever. He goes on to say that Christ will confess every believer's name before God and before His angels. He's going to affirm that they belong to Him. Here Christ reaffirmed the promise that He made during His earthly ministry. In Matthew 10.32, he says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. The comforting truth that the true Christian salvation is eternal. Eternally secure in the unmistakable teaching of Scripture. And nowhere can we find in Scripture where that is not stated more strongly than we can in Romans 8? Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he calls, so called. And these whom he called, he's also justified. And these whom he's justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus is the one who died. And yes, rather who was raised. Who's at the right hand of the Father. Who also intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, the sword, just as it is written in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Paul goes on to say, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus who in Christ Jesus our Lord. He goes on to say, Who he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
This is a church that was full of the spiritually dead that were just playing church. And it really needs to heed Christ's warning. His warning of an impending judgment. A judgment that is to come. And those that are in those that are that are indifferent, they need to wake up before it's too late. In the church of Sardis, they have a chance. There are a few that could take comfort in the knowledge of their salvation. See, when it comes to our life with Christ, there is nothing, nothing more important than your salvation. Absolutely, positively, nothing more important than your salvation. And while I was preparing for this study, um, I found kind of a lengthy little <clears throat> little study here that I want to just, just add into this. Because there are many people that are, that we have the question, you know, could you lose your salvation? They're not sure. There's many that have grown up in different belief systems that believe that we could lose our salvation. And those things that even though as, we, as we've transformed where, we've, where we know that we can't lose our salvation, those things from our past sometimes hinder us. Those things from our past sometimes hold on to us. Those things from our past sometimes put little doubts in our mind that says, well, maybe. Last week, my challenge was to you guys, was where are you going to spend eternity? I hope you guys took some time to think about that, to really ponder that. As long as, as long as, as long as this issue is unsettled, as long as the issue of, am I eternally saved? As long as there are any doubts or fears or anything that is holding us back from understanding eternal salvation, then we're going to struggle with peace. We're going to struggle with happiness. We're going to struggle with what has God really done for us? The gift of God is eternal life. And if the gift of God is eternal life, then how can eternal life be anything else but eternal? It can't be lost. It can't be taken away. It can't be forfeited. It can't be sent away. Eternal life, once given, is an eternal gift. And so I want to read to you these part of this little uh, part of the study or part of the book that I was reading. It says, Having eternal life is the Lord's repented declaration to all those who believe on His name. And this life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3 3. How then can it be lost? It is not in our hands to keep or to lose. Our life is His Son. 1 John 5.11 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 He will hold fast my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. John 10.29 Believers are the Father's gift to the Son. And the very fact in itself ensures that the resurrection of everyone given to the Son. 
No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are in the hand of the Son, John 10, 28. And in the hand of the Father, verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 29. Kept by the power of God, 1 Peter 1, 5. Our eternal security is in other is in other and more powerful hands than our own. Then comes the climax to the marvelous statement about our present and eternal safety. I and my Father are one. One in divine nature, one in purpose, to keep the blood-bought sheep. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor, uh, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can snatch you from the grasp of Christ who has all power, who is almighty, who saves forever, those who come to God through Him, since He, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. We are engraved upon the palms of His hands, on His breastplate, and on the stones upon His shoulders. Exodus chapter 28, verses 12 through 29. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 3.13 his hold, his heart, and his power will not lose one of his own. John 6:39. God for us brushes aside every difficulty and every weak, every difficulty, and is the weakest believer's triumphant answer to every believing doubt. As to my relationship, having been born again and then dwelt in the Holy Spirit. I am a child of God. I have eternal life. I am in Christ and a member of His body. First Colossians 12.13 I am no longer in Adam, but I am a new creation in Christ. Second Colossians 5.17 Eternal salvation. Now, as we read through Scripture, a lot of times we're questioned or we ask these things about, well, what's the difference between backsliding and apostasy? Because, yeah, we talk about eternal salvation, but then we read these other things and, well, maybe I just feel like I don't measure up. The difference between backsliding and apostasy Or the difference between Peter and Judas. Carefully distinguishes between the backsliding of real believers, which is Peter and Lot, or real falling away from apparent believers, such as Judas. Peter, in self-confidence, yet real love to his master, vowed that he would face prison and death for his beloved Lord. And at the voice of a servant maid, he had denied his master. With oaths and cursing, Peter sinned. But his faith did not fail. Go back to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, and verses uh, 54 through 62. It says, it is so that with each of us, even in the darkest season of our fiercest temptation, those who have the weakest faith always cling to Christ. He is the Son of the living God. Although, the, although our lips may cruelly deny that they know Him, Peter followed him, and he followed him afar off. My people have forgotten me days without number. Jeremiah 2, 32. 
yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 49.15 A believer may, alas, go down into the terrible depths of evil and for the time being wrecked present happiness and usefulness as Lot did in Sodom and as Jonah did and as the fornicator in 1 Corinthians did. How many true believers needlessly worry about the fear of being lost? Citing the sins of Judas and his awful end. But reasonings as to Judas, Satan's angel, and Adam falling overlook the difference made by eternal redemption that is in Christ Jesus as a believer. Many a believer has followed in the footsteps of Peter. They've backslidden. But no true child of God has ever gone nor can go in the way of Judas. Judas was an apostate. Peter was a backslider. And one for whom the Lord prayed and on whom the Lord looked, that touching the look of grieved and injured love that broke the heart of the poor backslider. Provision is made in the excuse me, provision is made in the advocacy of Christ with the Father for the restoration of backsliders in John one first uh, John two one. It is of apostates that this uh, that the sacred writer says it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again into repentance, Hebrews six. Judas was an apostate. And so the word had heard and received had no root in him. He was just a mere professor. He just professed Christ. He was not a saved man, nor quickened of the Holy Ghost. An apostate is one that professes to believe and receives all the outward privileges of Christianity, yet with no divine work in his soul. And so later he gives up Christ. Thus Judas, an apostate, sold his master. But Peter, the backslider, had temporarily denied him. Judas sinned willfully by rejecting the only Savior. Thus made it manifest that he would incur an awful judgment. A judgment which cannot possibly overtake even the weakest believer. He had shared in that eternal sanctification with, which includes all who outwardly separate from Judaism and paganism to embrace Christianity. The only soul-saving system which reveals a Savior. To sin willfully is to deliberately with heart and mind, give up Christ and Christianity completely. That's something that no child of God can do or would do. If an unredeemed professor, if an unredeemed professor deliberately renounces Christ for Muhammad, the Bible for the Quran, or Christianity for atheism, he embraces a system without a savior, without a sacrifice, and without a heaven. So there is nothing before him. The solemn warnings contained in Hebrews 6 and 10 refer to mere profession, to giving up Christianity, to go back to their old belief system. 
and do not assume that any of these persons referred to were ever true children of God. Do you see the contrast? Do you understand the difference between somebody that is backslidden and somebody that has just completely denied Christ? He goes on to say that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7, and makes us whiter than snow. Psalms 5, 51, uh, 7. Your sins are forgiven. 1 John 2, 12. Blotted out. Isaiah 44, 22. Put away. Hebrews 9, 26. As far as the east is from the west. Psalms 103, 12. Into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 19. And those sins He will not remember. Isaiah 43.25 Completely clean, John 3.10 Justified from all things, Acts 13.39 Protected forever, Hebrews 10.14 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 Chose as in Him, accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 6 Complete in members of his body, Ephesians 5.30. Preserved in Jesus Christ, Jude 1. And shall not come into judgment, John 5.24. Shall never hunger, shall never thirst, John 6.35. Shall never perish, John 10.28. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Guys, if there is even one in here that questions your salvation. If there is even one in here that questions if you could possibly even lose your salvation. I beg of you, please. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your elders. Talk to the overcoming Christians. Get that settled before anything else. Let's get back to verse 6. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches. Who is he that has ears? Simple. It's all people who have been or are being given the words of God. Those that are seeking God's truth. And when we seek God's truth, it takes energy and focus, and a willingness to be challenged, and a willingness to change. We might say that the church of Sardis was a dead church, but they were a revivable church. There were still those in there that could believe. There were still those in there that did believe. And in verse 7 it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Notice the description of Christ. He who is holy. The one that is holy. That's eternally righteous. He's our standard. He who is true. He doesn't conform. He's genuine. He's the epitome of truth. He who has the key of David. Here he says, I have the key. I have the sovereign authority to let you into the kingdom. 
just talking about salvation here. He has the sovereign authority to let you into the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of heaven. He said, I come that you might have life. What is that life? That life is eternal salvation. And that you can have it more abundantly. And as we go into verse 8, he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. For you have little strength. Have kept my word. And have not denied my name. church of Philadelphia this is one of only two of the churches that he had no condemnation he had nothing bad to say about them now some look at this verse and, and as he says that uh, I know your works and I have set before you an open door and no one can open it, open the door and no one can shut it and he goes on to say for you have little strength Sometimes people look at that and say, well, that's, that's kind of a condemnation, isn't it? Kind of a little bit of a rebuke, maybe? Most of the scholars say that it's because they were a small church. The term was used with two moral virtues. He said that they had kept my word and they have not denied my name. If we take that whole sentence and we keep it in context and keep it all together, that would cause me to believe that yeah, they were probably a small church. They probably didn't have a huge following like some of the other churches that we've studied. But sometimes that big following, that big influence that the churches have is not because they were being faithful, but because they had blended into the world. They had blended into society. In verse 9 he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogues of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. I will make those the synagogue of Satan, those who don't believe the gospel of Christ. Those that teach something else those that believe something different. He says, I will keep you from the hour of the trial in which shall come upon the whole world. I could very well mean the tribulation. In verse 11 he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. What he's saying is keep doing what you're doing. Don't be led astray. Don't fall into the world. Keep doing what you're doing. Christ is coming. In verse 12 it says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in my temple of God and shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city, the name of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God 
and I will write on him my new name. Verse 13 goes on to say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Christ is saying He will hold them and make them pillars. Meaning that this church, they were regarded as reliable. They were strong. They held true to the gospel. They weren't wavering. He says, I will write on them. He gives three things that he's going to write on them. What is that writing? He's eternally marking them. They're identified as the ones that he saved. The ones that have accepted the Lord Jesus as their Savior. The church of Philadelphia, we could call them a faithful church. And into the, uh, sorry, in the end of verse 14, he says, In the church of Laodicea, write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice how Christ identifies himself. He says, I am the Amen. It's also translated the truth. In the King James Version, verily. He says he is the faithful and true witness. Not only is he true, but one that sees all things, bears the truth. He has judgment over all things. He says he is the beginning of creation of God. The sovereign eternal God. The last church we looked at was, the only, was one of the only two churches that he had nothing bad to say about him. The church of Laodicea, this is the only church that he has nothing good to say about him. As we go into verse 15, he says, I know the, excuse me, he says, I know your works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Laodicea was a lukewarm church. This is a church that their believers had adjusted their whole life to the world. They're just playing church. They're not living. They're not growing. They're not being challenged. They're not changing. The sad part is they don't even know their true condition. They don't even know what they're missing out on. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. My guess is you probably couldn't tell the difference between them, the world, the pagans. You probably couldn't tell the church members from anyone else in the society. Can people see something different in your life? Can people see something different in your heart? in how you act and how you treat people and what you believe and what you stand for. Verse 17 goes on to say, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Those first part of that verse that says, Because you say this is what the church says about themselves. 
They say about themselves that they're rich and wealthy and in need of nothing. And notice what Christ says about them. What you do not know. Can you see the difference between what they say and what they know? The prideful approach that they had taken to life. The way they had said, see what I have done versus a real need for salvation. In verse, in verse 18, it goes on to say, I counsel you from I counsel you to buy from me gold refined from in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. You guys remember this verse? What shall a man profit? If what? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. That was this church. Christ is telling them, if you want riches, come to me. If you want clothing, come to me. If you want sight, come to me. Come to me and I will give you Gold refined by fire, pure gold, with no impurities. That pure gold is spiritual wealth. It's pure. It's priceless. First Peter one seven says it calls it true faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. Even though it is tested by fire, it's found ultimately the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Jesus is calling him to receive him. Verse 19, he goes on to say, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. As many as I love, How many does he love? You only have to go back to the one verse that probably everyone in here knows. John 3.16. And he says, I have so loved the world. How many has he loved? The world. Therefore be zealous and repent. Do it with all your might. Do it with all your heart. Repent. Come to me, he says. David Lloyd, uh, David Lloyd Jones puts it this way. Repentance means that you realize that you're a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God and that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God. That you are hellbound. It means that you begin to realize that, the thi that this thing called sin in you and that you long to get rid of it. And that you turn your back on it. In every shape. In every form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost. Do you think he's serious about the importance of repenting? As we go on into verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Who is knocking? Christ is knocking. Christ himself. He's saying, is there anyone who will hear my voice and open the door? He says, if there is, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is a church that has not ever even invited Christ in. 
In the church of Sardis, he was there in the presence of at least a few believers. But he, but here he is completely outside the church. Verse 22 goes on to say that he who has an, ear, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, as all of the letters close the same way, he says, he who has an ear, ear let the Spirit uh, hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Church, are you listening? All churches and all people fit into one or more of these seven letters that we've gone through. Have you felt convicted? Have you seen where you are at in any one of these places? The serving church who lost their first love like Ephesus? The afflicted and the poor yet spiritually rich like Smyrna? The worldly compromising church like Pergamos? Loving yet pagan compromised church like Thyatira? A dead but revivable church like Sardis? A faithful church like Philadelphia? A lukewarm church like Laodicea? Where do you see where you fit in? Even more important, where do you see this church fitting in? This week, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, if everyone put as much effort into the life of this church right here as what I do, what would this church look like? If every single person put as much effort into this church as you do, what would our church look like? Let's close. Heavenly Father, thank you for the things that we have learned, experienced, and discovered throughout the study. Pray, Father, that your words examine our hearts and our intentions and that we may grow and be challenged and changed by your word. Help us, Father, to have an ear to hear what it is that the Spirit say. Help us to understand what it is that you're calling us to do. As we head into our worship service, we pray that you have already prepared the hearts and minds of those that are leading us and those that are attending. We pray, Father, that we keep you first in our lives. Pray, Father, that you continue to lay on our hearts that you are our first love. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.